Hi everyone, I'm Majdi, and welcome to Reimagining Research, a podcast from the Institute of Global Health Equity Research at UGHE in Rwanda. At its heart, research is about generating knowledge and getting as close to truth as possible. It's about taking a systematic approach to solving problems. In public health, good intentions are not enough, and communities should know what works and what doesn't. The COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated this like never before and raised tough questions about how we do research in a way that is responsive, rigorous, fast, transparent, and above all, equitable. How can we do research to make sure that it is serving those who are most marginalized and move us towards a healthier, more just world? That's what this podcast is all about, how we can reimagine research for health equity. so glad to speak uh, in this episode with Professor Tim Carey, whose career has been one of continuously pursuing this question. Tim is uh, the Director of the Institute of Global Health Equity uh, Research and the Andrew Weiss Chair uh, of Research at the University of Global Health Equity in Rwanda. Um, so Tim, nice to, nice to connect with you. I thought you could uh, tell us a little bit about UGHC and the Institute of Global Health Equity. I imagine many of the folks listening to this would probably uh, know about the university, but for those who don't, um, would, would love if you could uh, tell us a bit more about it. Okay, thank you. Um, and it, it's great to be here and I'm, I'm just delighted that someone with your knowledge and expertise has agreed to host these and to ask us challenging and, and provocative questions to, uh, to move these along. It's a, it's a real treat to be able to to participate in in this series. Uh, The the University of Global Health Equity started in in 2015 with its flagship course, a Master of Global Health Delivery. And just last year, it started its first cohort of medical students, which will be a a six-year degree with the master's course combined. And the, the remit, I guess, of the university it's owned by uh, Partners in Health, a non-profit organisation, and the university is their attempt to not just improve health service delivery, but to improve the training of health professionals. So the Institute of Global Health Equity Research is really the, the latest innovation at the university, thanks to the, the generosity of, of Andrew Weiss. It's been a real whirlwind first few months and our remit, I guess, just just as the university is to, to reimagine the conduct of research, but also research training might occur in contexts like low and middle income countries to really help, help drive along this move to eradicate health inequities. Awesome. And you, you moved right at the start of the pandemic. So I imagine it's, it's been a hectic time uh, settling there, but it's been amazing seeing what you've already done so far for the Institute. And I'm really excited to see what evolves over the next few months. And, and Tim, you, you moved from Australia to Rwanda. And I, I wonder if you could uh, walk us through your background, because I think you come to this sort of working in you know, two historically neglected areas or populations in, in mental health and also in in remote health. And I just wonder if you could speak a little bit to that background and, and what it's brought to sort of your perspectives on, the, on this question of, of reimagining research, because I think it's a really fascinating background. So I would love if you could walk through that. Okay, thanks, 
Marcy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The um, I, I think mental health, and, and I think the evidence would indicate, is a um, an underfunded and under resourced area of health. And there's there's very good evidence that rurality or the the further that you move away from a metropolitan centre, the worse are the health outcomes. So I guess people in in rural, remote and very remote locations with mental health problems have a a kind of a double whammy that they they have to contend with. And I first started to consider these ideas almost by accident, really. After my PhD in clinical psychology, I moved to Scotland to work in the NHS as as a chartered clinical psychologist. And the model of training for clinical psychologists was called a scientist-practitioner model, which is is the idea that through your clinical practice, you will collect data and discover questions that that you could ask and gaps in the the evidence base. And then using a a systematic um, and organized approach, you might start to to conduct research activities to, to answer those questions. So each one kind of feeds the other. And I remember when I first heard about that model, it, it felt like I'd come home. You know, it was just the best description of how I wanted to work. And when I got to Scotland, there was a 15-month waiting list for people in rural and underserved communities to access clinical psychology services in primary care um, in the district within which I worked. So I, I started I started to look at that and I discovered the benefits of practice-based research or, or research that you could conduct while you were also conducting your, your clinical practice. And we demonstrated over the course of the five years that I was there doing fairly simple um, and humble evaluations with the colleagues with whom I worked. We reduced the waiting list from 15 months to, to less than a month. People could get an appointment to see a clinical psychologist with, within a couple of weeks of being referred by a GP. And that was just over, as I said, over a five-year period. So that was a, a really tangible difference for the lives of the people who, who could get assistance by accessing psychology services. Instead of waiting 15 months, they, they could wait less than a month. Um, so I've, I've kind of pursued that, I guess, that interest in, in practice-based research or research that tr- translates directly into, into tangible outcomes and it was it was very useful in in central Australia where I worked for 10 years and worked a lot with um, Aboriginal communities in in remote and very remote communities learning to work cross-culturally I, I think has has enormous advantages from a from a translational research perspective and so I'm I'm hugely excited about about putting those ideas to the test in in yet another different, set of circumstances in in Rwanda. Rwanda is an extraordinary country in in so many ways. We we feel really privileged to live and work here and and contribute to the incredible things that are going on. Fantastic. And you know, I think um what that experience that you just walked through I think speaks to is this idea of I think historically there's this tension around research, you know, to what extent does it have to be local and to what extent does it have to be to be global? You know, how important is it to look for what's common and then also what's different, you know, and, and between communities and across different disease areas and I think what's really interesting is how to balance that and embedding research as as much as possible into daily practice and thinking along those lines you know when you're thinking about reimagining research what does that mean to you where do you think are the areas that you know we should be focusing on and um, maybe even as part of this podcast you know what are some of the themes that we can start thinking about as well in, in in the coming episodes 
Yeah. Okay. Thanks. See, see, this this is why I love talking to you so much, Majesty. There's always <laughs> so much in in um, in what you say. The idea of you know differences and, and commonalities is something that that's very um, resonates very strongly with me. It's it's very dear to my heart. And I, I remember reading um, quite some years ago when I was studying statistics at the University of St Andrews in Scotland. Someone made the point that the strength of the physical sciences has come about largely because they focused on studying common underlying properties of, of materials and, and things. So when Galileo was rolling balls down ramps and dropping things off leaning buildings and so on, he, he did a whole bunch of different things, but he was looking for what was the same underlying all of those, um, all of those differences. The, um, the life sciences, however, focus, have focused their attention on, on the study of variability or the study of, um, of kind of surface um, differences. And they made the point that you will, you will never really understand um, or derive uh, common, common laws or natural, natural laws by focusing on um, superficial differences or, or the variability that exists um, in, in samples and populations. And I guess that's one thing, Marcy, I, I think a, a, a bigger focus on underlying common properties would be, would be awesome. I think statistics is a, is a fantastic field. I, I love it to bits and I love it that, that it can, at a, at a population level, it can make sense of otherwise very, very messy and complicated data and it can give us some really useful incredibly valuable even results and, and indicators of, of what we should do. But, you know, at the end of the day, life is not an aggregated event. Uh, life is a, is a lived event that has particular meaning and purpose for, for individuals. And I think it is possible to start with understanding individuals and to build up that understanding into a, an understanding across populations that that make sense and and is important so that would be one thing I guess broadening out the focus of our of our research as well I, I think in health settings it's very common to predominantly look at the effectiveness of our of our work and our interventions and I think that makes a lot of sense you know we want to know that that what we're doing is is effective um, for the people that we're who we're providing services to. But, but effectiveness isn't the only question that we should be asking. And the, the Joanna Briggs Institute, for example, has a very groovy acronym, which is FAME, um, F-A-M-E. I'm not sure if that came across with my Australian accent. Um, but it, FAME stands for um, feasibility, appropriateness, meaningfulness, and effectiveness. So, the people at the Joanna Briggs Institute would argue that comprehensive programs of research consider all of those questions. So not necessarily in the one in the one research project, but we need research to be looking at the feasibility of our interventions, particularly in contexts like low and middle income countries. It's just not the case that interventions that are feasible in large, well-resourced cities are going to be feasible in less resource environments and, and locations. So feasibility is really important. Appropriateness is incredibly important, particularly when, when we're working cross-culturally. I remember in, 
in Alice Springs, one of the the language groups in a very remote community out from Alice Springs, the the Walpri people, their word for anxiety was wajumpa. So as a clinical psychologist, I was particularly interested in understanding wajumpa or anxiety from from the Walpri people's perspective. But in understanding that, I also discovered that wajumpa is a word that they also use for grief, sorrow and concern, which from a Western perspective, we would normally associate with depression um, or, or mood problems. So, so understanding the the appropriateness of of our interventions in the contexts that we're applying them to is is really important. Also, understanding whether or not what we think is really important and useful and valuable is meaningful to the people to whom we're providing the service. So, those those three aspects I think are, are equally as important as finding out whether or not a service is effective. You know, often we discover that a, a service can be effective. For example, there's some really great studies demonstrating that online psychological therapies can be just as effective as face-to-face psychological therapies like cognitive behaviour therapy and so on. And that's enormously attractive if we're thinking about trying to get services out to as many people as possible. What they've also discovered, though, is when they've tried to roll out those services in routine clinical practice, very few people take up the, the service. So if, it, if it's completed as it should be, it can be highly effective. But in routine clinical practice, most people who are, who are struggling psychologically and socially don't sit down at a computer and work their way through an online intervention. So the other, the other aspects of, of understanding interventions in terms of feasibility, appropriateness, and meaningfulness um, are, are really important, uh, along with effectiveness. I'll, um, there's a bit more I'd, I'd love to say, but I'll, I'll stop there <laughs> um, <laughs> for now. No, 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 that's this is fascinating, Tim. And you know, I think in medicine and public health, you know, we we love long lists of evidence-based interventions or programs, but it's how do we actually sort of continue to do the research that's needed given that the potency of these interventions isn't something that's fixed. It's, it's not necessarily that just because we call it evidence-based, it's going to remain that way once it gets rolled out or scaled up. And so how do we think of, of research as this continuous process rather than a time-bound process that leads to the publication of a paper? That's what I'm really excited about sort of hearing, speaking to some these, these, these points and ideas and how we realize that framework of doing research that is more embedded, uh, but doesn't lose any of the rigor so that folks actually know, you know, what's what's working, what isn't. And I think this podcast, you know, one of the aims is to to have it be a tool for some of the students who are going to be training in research methods at, at UGHE, but also elsewhere in Africa and, and the world. And so we'd love to, you know, know if, uh, what advice you might have for young researchers who are just getting started on, on embarking on their career or maybe haven't necessarily even thought about research. You know, I, I, I got into it fairly late in my in my training, but I think uh, the, the earlier the better that folks can start thinking about these questions, I think. So, yeah, uh, curious if you've got any advice for your researchers, Tim. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Marcia. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, so much of, of what you say just sends little shoots going off in my mind like a, like a pinball machine. So so certainly your um, your ideas of rigor and and embedding research into what we do, I think, are, are really important. 
I've just in the next few months, I'm about to have a, a chapter published in a rural, remote and very remote mental health handbook. And, and the chapter is on research and evaluation in rural, remote and very remote settings. And in that chapter, I'm arguing that that there are five R's, if you like, to conducting high quality research in, in those locations. And the first one is rigor. I think we need to be rigorous in, in all that we do. And, and certainly for students, that's important to, to grapple with and, and to understand from the beginning. I, I think we sometimes get caught up in wanting to prove a, a really good idea that we have. And I think science is all about trying to disprove things. So we should develop a, a kind of a step back stance, I think, to our to our most favorite ideas. And I should probably do that myself with these ideas that I'm talking about right now, that that we should we should always be prepared to open them up to to public scrutiny and peer review. That's a that's a really important aspect of the scientific process. It's it's not a mistake at all to get things wrong. In fact, it's it's essential to get things wrong in order to find something better and and a more useful way of going. So rigor, I think, is really important. Reliability is also really important. We need to know that when we do a similar thing in a different context, we're going to get similar kinds of results. Replication should be done, should be conducted and should occur a lot more than it than it is. We often do, as, as you mentioned, we, we do a study, we get a little um, result that we're happy with, we write up a paper and then we move on to the next one. I think we need to be a lot more sceptical of our results and, and try to replicate the, the great things that we've done and replicate it in different contexts with different people and different researchers. I also think reporting isn't isn't something that we do well enough. Uh, we we certainly get very concerned, and as an academic, it's important to you know publish papers in peer reviewed journals and and all that kind of thing. And I'm I'm not meaning to be critical of of that at all. I I love publishing. I still look up my name on databases from time to time. But there's there's lots of other ways that we could be reporting, and I and I think we need to make much better use of things like social media. Um, and blogs and, and op-eds and different ways of, of getting our rigorous, reliable, replicated results out to people as, as quickly as possible. And the final R, I think that, that we, again, we often overlook and you've kind of touched on in terms of that sense of being embedded. I think research and evaluation should become routine for, for health professionals. One of my dreams here at, at UGHE and at the Institute is to find ways for research and research training to become research to become embedded in the the practices of of health professionals so that they will just see it as routine to be asking questions and organizing the data to that they're collecting in the course of their normal clinical practice to to find better ways of of delivering services for the benefit of the the communities we serve. And just to round that off, I think one of the habits that we've got into in research is to conduct research on bigger and bigger sample sizes to find smaller and smaller effects that can be statistically significant and useful. And while I think that's a, um, that approach certainly has its place, I'd also like to argue in the spirit of reimagining research, I'd like to argue for finding big effects with, with small sample sizes. I think we, we would really be onto something if we could demonstrate whopping big effects with, with small numbers of people. And 
When I was in Scotland, we had the opportunity in one GP practice to do a, a fairly simple study. All we did was change the way that patients scheduled their appointments. So rather than the clinical psychologists telling them when their appointments were, we set up systems so they could make their appointments at the practice in the same way they would to see a GP. And we, we just collected data on that over the six-month period that we ran the evaluation. At the beginning of the six-month evaluation, there was a seven-month waiting list to see the two psychologists in, in that GP practice. We ran the service and collected data, and then we compared the data from the two seven-month periods from the years before. So this was in 2006 that this evaluation occurred, and so we collected data from 2004 and 2005 and compared it to 2006. Coincidentally, from July to December in 2004 and in 2005, there were 52 people each year referred to the service. In 2006, from July to December, there were 93 people referred to the service. And by December 2006, we had eliminated the seven-month waiting list that had existed in June. So we went from a seven-month waiting list to no waiting list, and we almost doubled the referral rate. I think that's that's kind of an extraordinary result. And the only thing that we changed was the way in which patients evaluate, um, made appointments to, to see psychologists. So I think we need to be looking more and more for, for really big, dramatic results. And of course, then, you know, replicating them and reporting them and making sure they're reliable and, and so on. Fantastic. Well, Tim, this has been a wonderful conversation and I'm sure we'll have many more. And I think this is a great kickoff for our, for our podcast. And, you know, we've covered everything from waiting lists to Wajumpa. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot here for us to, to think about and I hope it's been valuable for, for listeners as well. Thank you so much for taking the time and I look forward to the updates as this institute grows and grows. Thanks so much, Marjorie. I think this has been a great opportunity and I'm really delighted at the questions and the probing that you were able to do. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. This is Professor Timothy Carey, the Director of the Institute of Global Health Equity Research and the Andrew Weiss Chair of Research in Global Health at the University of Global Health Equity in Rwanda. You just listened to an episode from our new series, Reimagining Research, which aims to explore innovative ways of thinking about research through the lens of health equity. We'll be bringing you new episodes moving forward, featuring experts from around the world on a variety of research topics. So subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or check back on the UGHE website to catch the latest episodes. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more.